I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today we'll be speaking with the British designer, creative director, and artist Samuel Ross. He's the founder of the fashion label A Cold Wall, and also runs the industrial design studio Samuel Ross & Associates, which creates projects ranging from sculptural installations and architecture to furniture and sound design. Samuel has collaborated with brands including Converse, Mercedes-Benz, and Nike, and has worked on projects with artists such as Daniel Arsham, Futura, and Takashi Murakami. In 2018, he was named the British Fashion Awards Emerging Menswear Designer, and in 2020, he won the GQ Fashion Award. Late last year, he debuted a series of furniture works at the Friedman Benda Gallery's booth at the Design Miami Fair. Samuel has a deep understanding of how materials tell stories across geographies, cultures, and time periods. And he marries that with a strong appreciation for hyperlocal regional craft. We're really excited to have him on the podcast. Before we get into it, we'd first like to thank our sponsor, the Japanese watchmaker Grand Seiko. Pride of place is central to Grand Seiko's identity and watchmaking. At the heart of the company is its new Kengo Kuma-designed Shizuku Ishi Studio in Morioka in the Iwate Prefecture, where the company's watchmakers create its impeccable mechanical timepieces, produced entirely in-house and with a wide range of proprietary materials, methods, and designs. These watchmakers at Shizuku Ishii created the new award-winning White Birch, which is part of the Heritage Collection. It features a dial that takes cues from the birch trees surrounding the studio. They also make another one of Grand Seiko's latest watches, the Omuwitari, part of the Elegance Collection, which features a dial that's textured to mimic the undulations of the frozen lake Suwa. The company's iconic tempered blue snowflake dial is another tribute to locale, in this case, to the sky over the Otaka mountain range in Japan's Nagano prefecture, which is home to the company's Shiojiri factory and its Shinsu watch studio, where all of its spring drive watches are made. Yet another example of this is the company's Mount Iwate dial, which honors that volcano's many ridges. To learn more about Grand Seiko's intricate approach to craft and distinct relationship to nature, head to www.grand-seiko.com. And now here's our conversation with Samuel Ross. Hi, Samuel. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Pleasure, Andrew. Brilliant to be here. I've been looking forward to this for quite a short time, so... Nice. So where are we speaking to you from? Are you in England right now? Yes, I'm in England, which is, you know, home turf for myself. I'm actually about 85 miles out of London at the moment. I kind of split my time between the two to try and, you know, get the best of uh, both worlds, to be honest with you. And what are you working on these days? Just before this call, I was juggling between some ready-to-wear developments, runway developments, and, you know, really what's been on, like, the front end of my mind at the moment is standalone sculpture and, of course, furniture. And I tend to kind of, like, juggle and jump across each of those different silos to keep the mind ticking, you could kind of say. Well, we just saw the Signal series down in Miami. Mark from Freedom Bender showed us. It was amazing. We love seeing it. It was by far the most beautiful booth in that space. It really stood out for what it had to say. So just wanted to start by speaking a bit about 
how you got into making furniture. I mean, this is a, somewhat of a new direction in the last few years and sort of your path to getting there because you, I imagine, started in graphic design and then in fashion and apparel and then eventually in furniture and three-dimensional sculpture. Completely. You know, um, Andrew, when I kind of think back to first kind of answering why do I create and how did furniture and, you know, this interim space between art, furniture and design really come into fruition. To be completely honest with you, it goes right back to joining my father on one of his, um, you know, master opening days at Centris of Mines. He specialised in um, product uh, engineering and innovative materials, specifically around glass. So from, you know, as long as I can remember, there's always been this relationship with like craft and making and the idea of the artisan and there being some type of link between my father and myself. And to a degree, I guess I absorbed part of his interest as my identity to a degree. So although it's been a slightly atypical path, into, you know, having a proposal of fully formed or articulated furniture works or design works, there's always been this pull, you could kind of say, or center point, which, you know, rotated around the idea of furniture and making and craft. So really, you know, how we got to that notion of fatherhood, connected with my father, being exposed to design through him first and coming from a very much, you know, articulate and creative household. I then, as you said, sidestep into graphic design and product design. And at that point, it's more so understanding the semantic values of how to speak through material and speak through color, you know, speak through form and shape. And naturally, that curiosity and love for learning naturally mm. kind of bleeds over all of these different, you know, fields. Previous to this, you had a collection that was much discussed of three chairs, Recovery, Signal 3, and Trauma. For people who may not have seen them or may not know about them, what were you exploring in these works? How can you describe the works with words? And maybe eventually you could get to helping us understand kind of what they taught you, what path they set you on after you made those three works. Completely. I think when I think about signal as a series you know there's three chairs that we're discussing it's really looking about the relationship between what it means to grow up within the 20th and 21st century with a western mindset whilst also having the experience of someone who is not from the west so it's this tension and dynamism between heritage that being for me the caribbean and finding out of course exactly where i'm from in west africa via dna tests but also seeing myself as someone who is of the West, of third world culture, having been born and raised within the West and having this deep connection and passion and exposure to modernism, brutalism, industrial materials, whilst also going on this personal journey of exploring craft and folk and the idea of erosion and raw material and mineral. So there are two parts of my story and not just my story, you know, the global story that really inform Signal One. What initially started, you know, as an introspective story quickly evolved into an emotional story, of course. Now, if we think to Trauma Chair, Trauma Chair came about, you know, right over the same time period that we had the last civil rights movement in the US, which of course trickled across Europe and the UK. And this idea of design and furniture and chairs being able to carry an emotional prospect and to a degree reflect the body really came to fruition with, with trauma chair. What was once 
organic and recycled woods such as OSB and softer embalmed lacquers, which I was looking at, I felt like that just didn't feel on the nose enough for what was being felt across that period. So I started firing wood, I started lacquering wood, I started involving food materials associated with the black experience historically, you know, sugarcane, molasses, turmeric, and, you know, really experimenting with how can these materials which have such a storied history of travel and agriculture and identity then start to integrate with materials which really are the synthesis of Western industrialization, you know, OSB wood plywood and pulling these two materials together to show that there is a continuity between both worlds. One cannot exist without the other, historically, philosophically, and seeing what that brang forward in terms of uh, aesthetic and in terms of texture and in terms of colour and depth. And what came about it was, of course, really the breakthrough piece here was trauma chair. This fired, glazed chair, which has this mottled um, beautiful patina from the sugarcane and the molasses, which is, you know, really starting to fuse with the OSB. And then you've got the resin and the synthetic fibers, which of course hold that wood shrapnel of OSB together, fusing with sugarcane. And this relationship of meshing materials from different worlds and experiences from different worlds, really for me summarizes signal one or the signal series even. Growing up, you also did a lot of painting with oils and acrylic and later got into illustration. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to how that has informed your practice, the act of painting, illustration, image making. Totally so. You know, I always laugh and joke with some of my peers and friends about this. I'm kind of like, my generation, I'm 30. We're like the last generation to really learn hard skills of like draftsmen. You know, so when I think back to my schooling education, it's letter sets, it's technical drawings, it's hand sketches, it's, you know, still life. But we also then overlay those techniques with a lot of digital technology. So I'm quite proficient in 3D rendering and modeling and a little bit of engineering there. But I do prefer to work in the more traditional means which is large scale, fine paper, tracing paper, sketching by hand and jumping across different mediums, whether it be ink, oil, chalk, uh, pencil. These are the mediums that, that I really preferred. And that really comes back down to a love, Spencer, like, like a love of mm. craft and a respect for, for discipline, a respect for why certain mechanisms were developed to articulate ourselves. Um, and that, I guess in that respect, I'm a little bit more traditional to be fair. Could you tell us a bit about your upbringing in the UK, these communities that you grew up in, how that shaped you, your perspective on the world from these places that you were raised in? Totally. So I'm Black British. My heritage, of course, is Caribbean, so Barbados and St. Vincent. And I was born in southwest London, Brixton, you know, and I was born just after the late 80s civil rights riots within Brixton. So immediately you're kind of birthed into this hyper-conscious environment, which is, you know, astutely aware of material surrounding the feeling that kind of conveys. Outside of the actual environment itself and the region, the household was incredibly creative and quite astute. So my mother is a lecturer and a teacher and a painter at college and university level. And my father 
studied at St. St. Martin's and specialised in woodwork and stained glass and fine art. So from quite a young age, there was this real progressive prospect that artistry, philosophy, creativity leads in the household. And that actually became our way of bonding to agree. It was by debate, by discuss of material, being exposed abroad, actually, to um, different environments such as the Caribbean as a young child quickly gave me a perspective on, to be honest, the additives that we actually have in the West in terms of opportunity and the ability to actually have the skill of alchemy. And that skill of alchemy, which was embedded quite young, is this prospect of if we have an idea in the West, we can take that idea, apply knowledge and resource to it and manifest it. That is a expression and a luxury that is not afforded in federal countries that I was exposed to as a child to a degree. And having that understanding consciously really um, spurred forward the feeling in the household of being able to create and articulate yourself. I should also know I was brought out of school when I was seven years old to about 10 or 11 before my parents started professionally teaching because they just didn't believe in the school I was in and decided to homeschool me. And I remember, you know, producing and making pinhole cameras with my father at this point, focusing on craftsmanship, artistry, you know, reading classics um, with both of my parents. So this, you know, that was kind of the household that I grew up in. It wasn't a typical one, to be fair. <laughs> it sounds like a liberal arts education right there in the house. It's amazing. Pretty much. You know, we were looking back at some of the things you've done with in the apparel side of your practice. And I was particularly struck by the autumn winter 2020 season where you made this massive shift and you designed it pre-COVID, but it was kind of shockingly in step with this moment of essentialism. So you had designed it at this, this peak moment of excess and confusion as a response in a way, or I'm curious if it was a response, and you snapped back. So I want to hear a bit about that time, that decision, how it felt when the world kind of turn towards that perspective? And do you think this kind of sensibility towards minimalism and essentialism and reduction will carry on for quite a while for you? Yeah, I think there's a, you know, back to that collection eight over 20 collection, there was, you know, you nailed it on, on the head to, to a degree, Andrew, this oversaturation of, to be honest, a lot of verbose products and a lot of products. I, I felt like we needed to kind of to be honest, respect the audience a little bit more as a industry, that being fashion, that being luxury streetwear. And I felt that there was maybe a pilfering that was occurring in terms of what the audience should expect from a brand of our size and within our ilk. As you rightly said, the explosion was actually the implosion there to kind of swing the pendulum all the way back and actually focus it down to what the value proposition and what my perspective in fashion is, which is fundamentally based on, you know, shape, material quality, articulating through color versus it being led by, let's say, again, oversized logos or overselling this idea of youth to a degree, because youth is not an identity. It is a trait, not an identity. And I think at that point, my daughter had just turned one and a half. So, you know, my first child has been born. I was just engaged. And you really start to question your position, also disposition and conflicts as of moving from boyhood to manhood. And that collection, you know, truly summarizes that to a degree. As we were stepping into a very much essentialist prospect, lockdown, of course, occurred. And to a degree, we had to recontour our positioning a bit because all of a sudden, 
what we were vicariously trying to push out of the window, that being like slouch and lounge, actually became the essential prospect. So for the last year or so, it's more so been this mediation of how do we kind of give people the function of comfort, but not, you know, allow comfort to be associated too deeply with boyhood or too deeply with this enigma of youth, because that is one of the failures of the fashion industry is that often they only want to speak to one generation. And I believe that value and aesthetic and taste and sensibility is intergenerational. You know, it's not just about Gen Z and millennials, it's about boomers, it's about Gen X, it's about the whole throw, you know. It's interesting, I read that Massimo, Massimo Vignelli, of course, is Mm -hmm. is a beacon for you of someone you've looked to. And having a reverence for a giant like Vignelli, who was uh, really embraced minimalism and essentialism in everything he did, he was coming from a place of wanting to make a lasting impact, to find a certain truth that didn't stand a moment in time, right? The logos that he made are still in use. The designs that he did are still iconic. Is this sense of time and longevity and this quality of essentialism have something to do with staying power and a response to the turnover in fashion, to the idea that things change so quickly? Completely so. I think this is actually, you know, one of the talking points of why I started to diversify how I communicated beyond the silo of fashion. Because I think as communicators, as designers and as artisans, the main prospect outside of expression is to make sure that there is a immortality to what we bring forward and that it is, you know, correctly articulated and housed within the time that we are alive historically. As you rightly said, that silo, that slipstream at times of fashion can sometimes lose its footing to a degree. There is still a space which is important for hyper-articulate or expressive work, which does belong in the history books and does help summarize and reflect the times of the now. But actually I found the field and space of like, you know, furniture design and fine arts to be a little bit more in tune with the perspective I had of what was deemed to be important. You know, and and there's this real fine line between, especially in fashion, what is relevant versus what is important. And having like a very, clear opinion on that is totally one of the reasons why I decided to kind of broaden out a little bit more. Like Massimo, who did furniture, who did clothing, he did a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. There was this through line. So I found that interesting that you were connected in that way. I was also curious, like him, do you find that the choices you're making in your work need to align with the ones in your life? So does this minimalism cross over into how you're living when you were expressing this new direction in your work? across everything, actually, the furniture and the clothing. Were you also shifting the modality of your life to match that? Completely so. You know, alongside the AW20 collection, I was reading heavily into minimalism, really questioning what the prospect of transaction and conversion and and monetary gain actually equates to. And there was this total hard reset to a degree. After about a period, maybe about a year and a half of living pretty minimal, pretty stark, lots of empty echoing bellowing spaces throughout the the, the home, there was this new perspective that kind of formed and it felt far more decisive. On one front, there was bleeding edge minimalism where if it's not essential, if it's not well-made, if it's not built to last, if there's not been consideration, it, it needn't exist or, you know, be within our periphery or, or cloud the mind mm-hmm. or clatter through a hallway. On the other front, 
this idea of like hyper expression, maximalist prospects, uh, the optimism to almost counter maybe the slightly more pessimistic and absolute conversations I have in fashion with a cold war based on what it needs to express and what it needs to talk about. I needed to counter that for my soul to a degree. And that's where this silo and outlet of furniture and fine art really started to come in into the foray because there was no modus operandi associated with that level of expression. Whereas when I think back to, you know, a cold war and refreshing, there is a problem to be solved and there is a need to be met. So although certain traits of my personal life and personal philosophy, of course, directly filter into what I do in fashion, art and design felt like a totally open and free space where I didn't necessarily need to hold an output or what was revealed through process hostage to consumer needs. Fascinating. I mean, also these rules that surround it. I started to stay with Massimo, but <laughs> I think there's this amazing linkage there. You know, he had rules. It was all about these very, very stringent rules that he found work in. And you seem to have these rules within your own practice. I read once that everything has to have three selling points. Mm -hmm or you're not making it. So I have kind of a dumb question, which is why three? And generally, what are those selling points? Oh, that's a brilliant question. You can see me, sm I'm smiling everyone listening because I love <laughs> talking about these matters, you know. The rule of three really came about from a series of engagements or emotional responses that could almost assure the viewer or the consumer or the user that the engagement is worth their time to a degree. Mm -hmm. And we've used this for both product and we've also used it based on experience as well as product releases as a whole. So for example, if we're releasing, let's say, a piece of footwear, we're releasing some leather goods, the idea is to have a triptych, that being you know, a digital layer of communication, which could be democratizing product access through AR and VR, through gamifying, to also democratize how people engage with product versus there being like an educational barrier, which can easily come about just by like font setting. You know, that immediately becomes discriminatory to a degree. So gamifying on digital, AR and VR on digital, are ways that we do that. Animation in digital is also a way that we would do that. Then they would need to be, the second point ideally would be a physical layer. You know, and this is where what can't be conveyed digitally is really amplified. This may take, you know, shape as a pop-up in a concession or mono store. It could take shape as a one-to-one -one talk with an audience, you know, almost like a, a product review and walkthrough of sorts. It could even take shape just through installation and the product and how it's articulated being almost exploded and broken down into little bits as if it was in an art gallery or museum. So people can really understand the design decisions that were made, the material decisions that were made and how how much care and thought really goes into developing product. The third point typically uh, sits under cultural. Yeah, and this is almost by association, by network and by friendship, ensuring that people uh, who are deeply respected within domestic regional communities have access to the product, have time to use it and can then spread that through word of mouth. That would be, of course, more of like a, a marketing foray of the free touch points. If we're talking about the product itself, I mean, it, material quality, craftsmanship, utility, function, and expression. Those are the three points that we have to articulate in every product, from a t-shirt down to a piece of footwear, down to a vehicle, you know, that has to exist or I'm just not interested in putting my time in or putting my team onto it. Or I also have a deep respect for the, you know, the audience and consumer because 
I am the audience <laughs> and consumer to a degree. You know, I see the care I have for product and love for product within the people who follow my work. We are one in the same to a degree. Hey, everyone, just taking a quick break to tell you about our new At A Distance book. It's our first book. We published it with our friends at Apartamento, and it features a curated selection of the interviews from this program over the past year and a half. It's condensed, edited, and distilled. It's a great collection of the best thinking shared by our guests presented in digestible, short-form narratives. The book provides a hopeful, optimistic guide for today and tomorrow in a gorgeous, flexi-bound volume. We're really excited about this. You can order your copy at slowdown.tv backslash at a distance book or through Apartamento and select booksellers. You've spoken also about this element of socialism in your work, this idea of pluralism, the collective, a democratic viewpoint, commentary around equality. What are some of the ways that you kind of seek to realize this within the projects you do? I think the two main ways that we've done it, one is on the nose, hard approach, and the other is more of a soft approach. For the hard approach, it's literally, you know, producing brilliant product, raising great revenues off of the margins of that product and filtering capital directly back into community and institute. And I should probably also touch on this because this is, a, of course, a topic we spend a lot of time talking about in-house. It's beyond race. It's actually more of a class matter. It's an access matter, which is why when we do have these on-the-nose, more hard approaches, the funding isn't just about helping people of colour, it's about helping people who need access in general. You know, whether that be relief for their business, like small startups for millennial generation, whether that be access to resources such as literature or digital poverty, whether that be immediate relief in terms of food and homeless shelters, whether that be brilliant students who just need a co-sign from the correct academic body or institute. This idea of immediate relief and democratic funneling of funds in startup culture can be way more elastic. Sometimes we do, you know, funding for 12 people. Sometimes it's business emergency grants. Another time it's just connecting the right people together at the right time and making sure those introductions happen. If it's more of a soft approach, I think you can look at how democracy and equality actually looks in like a B2B prospect. So what does the internal face of the company look like? You know, what's the average age? Is this diverse enough? You know, to a degree, keeping a level of advocacy in place, but also not making decisions because it seems like the right thing to do. Decisions need to be accurate, they need to be calculated. And if that means keeping a smaller team and actually allowing those team members who represent what I believe and what I feel a company should feel like need upskilling so they can go vertical up the company versus bringing in a bunch of people, then we'll do that. And that's kind of like the hard and soft of it, I'd say. Yeah, it's creating opportunity across the board. In an interview last year, when asked if fashion is social, you said art has no master, fashion is tribal, garments are codex. Andrew and I were hoping you could expand on this for us a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think I was, I was feeling hyper-emotional. I'm probably triggered by that question. I guess the tribal prospect really comes back down to my community and, and audience and the people who follow and read and, and buy what I do, we're almost like a tribe and there are like no rules of engagement to join that. You know, the followership isn't 
There aren't predetermined causes of why you can and cannot join. It's not based on race. It's not based on class. It's not based on gender. It's not based on location. It's based on this love for detail, this love for precision, this love for expression, this this love for like the history of craft. You know, there's as much passion within our tribe for an atelier who is maybe 55 years old working at the Louis Vuitton Atelier as it is for the kid in southwest London or in Toronto or in, you know, Mercer in Soho who just loves bright colours and, and doesn't actually understand they're in love with colour theory. That is the tribe and it is hyper-emotional. And by art, you know, art doesn't have a master because fundamentally its function is to simply record and articulate the times and express and to evoke and to bring questioning. I remember the first time I saw Henry Moore's sculpture. It must have been about seven. And <laughs> the first things, questions, thoughts in my head were, who, why, what, when, how? <laughs> you know, art has no master. It just simply needs to provoke and reveal through the provocation, through its existence. Where, of course, for me, fashion's purpose is its tribal function. That is what actually pulled me in to it. Before I, I knew what fashion was, I knew apparel, I knew clothing, I knew the feeling of being seen or felt to be connected to peers. I hope that kind of, you know, mm-hmm. helps summarize those words that I kind of threw out emotionally. Yeah, no, I, I, it makes a lot of sense. A thing that interests me also is your relationship to the idea of mentorship. I mean, you spoke a bit recently about how you're operationalizing that in your own practice. But who have been the mentors that made significant impact on you? And how did that kind of inform your approach to mentorship now that you're in a position to be one? I think the best way to look at mentorship is almost like exposure, just exposure to reality, exposure to what it is to be within the field and space. You know, I always um, have a difficult time with the word. I'm sure we all do, because this idea of it's more so, I think even more so now, apprentice is better than mentor, isn't it, to a degree? And that's kind of how I learned. You know, I was under Kanye, under Virgil, working these insane hours just to kind of learn and absorb how to think and problem solve and how to articulate. And I sometimes think, you know, and I I know I use the term as well, the word mentoring, it's become this term which is almost like a soft bubble wrapped, placed in the corner, you know, um, with the perfect room temperature. And then you kind of are just kicked out down the stairs back into the blistering cold and you've had your mentorship. It has a sense of entitlement, right? I mean, there is this total sense of entitlement attached to the word. Completely. And there's also this, it has a really weird uh, relationship to the opposite of like fear and the opposite of risk. Mm -hmm. What we've been trying to do internally is actually heighten and raise the stakes surrounding what mentorship is. More so... You can be in the space, be in the room, work with us, but it's going to be difficult. We're not going to baby. We will give you resources. We will put you in the email or in the room with the right people, but that's all we're going to do. And I think to a degree, that is the best way for an individual to ascertain if they truly want to take the path they believe they do. It's just via exposure and by truth to a degree. Yeah, you didn't fall into working for these giants. No. You chased it. Several emails. And then had to work your ass up. This is it. Emails and, you know, working two to three jobs at ad agencies, product design agencies, graphic agencies, figuring out what you don't want to do, then going into unpaid and quitting a job and moving. I mean, we've all had this type of story. That is what it takes. And to a degree, some of that is being... There there are, you know, particular people of the next generation who are absolutely doing this. 
And there are some who maybe don't understand that hardship is part of the journey. That is what shapes and molds you. You need that. If there is no hardship, you will crumble before you even get halfway. Mm-hmm. Bringing that that flame and fire out of people and exposures, that is mentorship now. That's, that's what I wish for it to be deemed as. Apprenticeship might be a better word. You're right. It's kind of bringing it up from when it was. You don't expect much when you're the apprentice. Yeah. Completely. Mentorship kind of connotes this weird power dynamic too. And a fake kind of idea that it goes both ways. Moving on from that, this notion of performance art as key to being a designer or visual communicator now, where did you first see that? Because connecting, and I'm imposing this, I don't know if this is true, but connecting to the two people who you did come up under and work so hard for, they put force behind that idea of performance art as key to being the designer. So tell us a bit about your thoughts on that. You know, let's use a practical example. So if you think about Virgil Abloh's first show at Louis Vuitton, and if you think about the layout of that walk, right? So all of the models walk in single file format, and there's probably like a four meter break between each of them. And then if you look at his last show, show eight, where you have models walking in like an asymmetric pattern, you have performance artists, you know, floating and jumping up and down into voids in the background. You have a second run of dancers moving at a different foot speed. You have a third round of dancers walking backwards. You have a fourth round of performance artists staggering and stopping. This is all happening simultaneously. The importance of performance art, you know, at least for V and I, was simply through looking at some of the greats and beginning to litmus test and A-B test through trial and error. And I think gradually, you know, going back to the Vuitton reference from show one to show eight, as you have that curiosity to push beyond simply showing product, but to actually articulate a perspective, you start considering all these other prospects. You know, now if I go back to my breakout show in, which was SS20 show, which of course had the red body, the naked red body exposed, this idea of altering temperature within the space, altering wind speed within the space, already acts as variables the same way that we treat you know material color font i mean there's a level of um childlike curiosity there which then blossoms and then with time those prospects begin to mature and you find your cadence you find your rhythm you find your voice within that silo of performance but it's underpinned by the same limitless perspective we had that there was a proposition that could sit between let's say streetwear and luxury or fine art and furniture to a degree sometimes naively throwing ourselves into the abyss to see if we can etch out some type of form or shape and gradually reshaping and reshaping and then widening that network of experts you kind of start with a show caller and you tell the show caller i want you know model a to walk very close to model b and to slump their shoulders down all of a sudden the show caller introduces you to a professional dancer who introduces you to a choreographer. And the next thing you know, Vanessa Beecroft references are all over the room and she's saying, um, you know, uh, <laughs> whatever she's saying. Uh, and it, it's just this process of exploration and taking the codex and swipe card of hard design skills and applying them to different mediums. I wanted to bring up materials. You have this really kind of profound respect and reverence for them in all the work you do. 
So across fashion, the installation work, the furniture, could you speak to this material approach, like how you choose, use, and combine materials? Completely. You know, uh, material, God, uh, I smile thinking about the word itself. For me, materials, it is information and it is encrypted. And you can play with that encryption to evoke different feelings and emotions. And for me, that is alchemy. That is magic. And there is a, of course, there is theory behind material and the order in which we engage with material and color and space. But material as a world and as a word for me, it represents mass. And by that, I mean, you can step into an empty room, which has maybe a, let's say if it has a rich West African ebony wood stall in the bottom left corner. And on the adjacent wall, there is a shattered piece of, you know, recycled glass. And within that space, the ceiling height, the floors, the temperature of, let's say, the uh, the chalk on the wall all engage with that shattered piece of glass and that rich lacquered ebony West African wood. And this idea that material is, is almost like, it sounds a bit philosophical, but it's almost like air. It fills space. And I'm obsessed with the ordering of how material is proposed, the sequence in which we engage with materials, and the idea that materials carry history by how they are shaped and treated you know and that level of encryption really comes forth through that storytelling through material to a degree but it's a micro and macro and there's no bias i'm just as passionate about this paper stock called goya which comes at like 240 gsm all the way up to 460 gsm and it has this incredible rich dense gritty feel to it and we use it endlessly and i'm just as you know passionate about fired reconstituted synthetic woods which represent again the bleeding edge of 20th century innovation within the west uh, and engineering and there is no bias between the two i see them as layers like you know layers to articulate but also layers that exist to storytell amongst and that is my prose <laughs> about um, material that's beautiful is there a material you're obsessed with right now you know there's two the first is OSB. I feel like it's, I mean, the, the prospect of what we have with it is great, but there's endless iterations of OSB, which I think could really be quite incredible for like debris, scrap wood, recycling, reconstituting. I don't think it's been propagated or exploited properly yet. I'm really interested in that. The second, at the moment, I'm totally obsessed with minerals, like chalks and iron ores and materials that carry this deep spiritual property and reverence simply by their smell, their touch, their composite, how porous they are. There's something deeply humane about porous rocks and minerals and how we treat them and how they smell and how they feel and how they kind of absorb their environment or take scent that I'm totally fixed on and have been fixed on for, for quite a while. There's definitely this um, religious undertone to ores and minerals that has my mind fixed. And then again, the liquidity that processed, recycled fibres such as ply and OSB bring forward and being able to propagate and add value to those materials by how they're contorted. Those are the two that are really, really uh, inspiring me at the moment. Mm. Where does sustainability fit into this material conversation? Like, what is your 
personal philosophical view around sustainability? I think it depends what field we're slotting sustainability into. In fashion, for me, there's too much focus on our ideal view of what sustainability is. And by that, I mean, it often doesn't take into account like the supply chain demands that, you know, have immediate effect in third world countries who are actually producing the goods. You know, um, I remember being in like a really rural town in Guangzhou in 2018 in China. And, you know, we were visiting some factories and there was this huge uproar because particular groups wanted to stop using synthetic dyes. And in in Guangzhou, they they were really specializing on synthetic dyes. And they were told, you need to just scrap all of this, you know, liquid resin and, and nylon and polyester overnight, or you lose your contracts, right, with the West. You know, you just saw leaders and leaders and leaders of liquid plastic floating in local rivers, which then totally deteriorates the local ecology and, you know, agriculture and farming of like fish. And it really incited by the prospect of the West wanting to be more sustainable. So it's really hard to, especially in fashion, to not look at both sides and take the conversation down the philosophical route. At the same time, the micro grassroots developments that are happening within fashion, you know, almost seed to sow hyper local is so important. And that matters because that has immediate change and can be communicated instantly. But as soon as it gets to group level, it gets very difficult. In terms of, you know, design and fine arts, the economies of scale are a lot easier for it to have immediate effect. In terms of um, sustainability, again, because going back to earlier quote, because art really serves no master to a degree, sustainability doesn't become a barrier of sorts to take away from quality or from cost to articulate oneself. So within the arts and within design, I feel hyper optimistic about it. There were some really interesting producers who were looking at, you know, recycled iPhone glass, for example, and how that can be moved into more of like a a fixed uh, material that can, you know, um, take weight and load weight. I'm optimistic as a whole, but I still think there's a philosophical chunk of that conversation missing on the fashion side. I also wanted to bring up utopian thinking. And, you know, I'm thinking along the lines of Buckminster Fuller, the Bauhaus, Black Mountain College, Super Studio. What are your thoughts on utopianism and how do you define or see it? How do you think about it in the context of what you do? You know, I used to have much more of like a broad stroke prospect of it, which was maybe a little bit more naive a few years ago. You know, the idea of a utopia can be immediately produced. But actually, I'm looking at the prospect of like micro utopia now which goes back down to this relationship of how material can immediately, your series of of engagements with materials or space can then affect one's state of mind and how one feels and how one responds to the world. So the idea of personal utopia, the idea of public utopia existing in particular moments or fleeting moments to degree, feels like a way to practically take some of those top line incredibly important philosophical top-line thoughts and apply them into the immediate reality. And again, you know, if I go back to the Henry Moore reference, being seven and being exposed to that carries the same utopian prospect that I am trying to articulate with public furniture and public art and large-scale sculpture. The idea that something should not exist, but it does, and that kind of opens up a refraction of many thoughts and feelings that maybe one hasn't been exposed to. 
support the idea of utopia and access and equality, that one can feel how another feels, regardless of where they are based, due to the power of art or due to the power of expression. And that, to a degree, feels quite utopian. Yeah, and also a huge amount of taking responsibility as a possible power and upstream thinking and the ripple going out when you communicate this kind of provocation. So before we let you go, and you have a lot to do, I'm sure, today. Thank you for the time. We did want to ask one final question, which is, as you look out right now, things are changing. I mean, we've sort of moved into an endemic. It's not quite a pandemic anymore. Things are opening up. Things are really changing. What is giving you the most hope right now as you're looking around personally for times being different than they are right now? It's a really good question. What is giving me the most hope right now? I guess there are two things I see that give me hope. One is that Gen Z are far more defined in what they perceive to be ethically and morally good or bad versus millennial. I think that's a really, that is a beacon of light and hope that they, you know, when I think about millennials prospects and my prospect of what good and bad means in terms of corporate versus ethic, you know, we're one of the last generations who still kind of want to coexist in the corporate space and take virtues of the hard left with us. When I look at the next generation coming forward, it may also not always take form their thoughts in the most articulate of ways. And some of those ideas philosophically might not be formed yet. There is still this understanding that there is a counter weight into how one can live and one does not need to commit to what has been posed as normality prior. So the next generation deeply inspire me. Gen Z's deeply inspire me. Alongside that, the return of hyperlocal and the return of the artisan taking shape. And by that, I mean local history coming back to the fore. You know, if you think about the you know early 2000s, and I was speaking to Mark about this not too long ago, Mark Newsom and I, we did a small talk in London, super private talk, and we were talking about the feeling that kind of seemed to overtake the idea of local identity in the design, not even community, on the design stage in the late 90s and early 2000s. This idea of a homogenous design aesthetic, which is very anamorphic, very soft, very lucid, a lot of PU, a lot of transparency, a lot of plastic, a lot of sheen, right? We can all remember that. And there was some like, incredible works that came about there. But what we're seeing now is that aesthetic is being challenged and broken down and deteriorated. And, you know, individuals and, and arts and craftspeople and artisans globally are staying local to a degree, staying rural, which is what Rem has, of course, written about and Samir have written about quite a lot with OMA. And actually what we're seeing is this reintroduction of local craft and identity come to the fore. This idea of an analogous society maybe isn't the right idea. You know, these different perspectives and opinions actually support one another and help us be far more defined and actually deliver a far more enriched experience. So the idea of hyperlocal, the idea of regional traits coming back to the fore is really inspiring to see like a, a new layer of heritage and craft come to the fore so inspires me mm, sounds like a fascinating talk the two of you actually are coming from a lot of alignment when you think about it but really coming from very different generations and very different perspectives it sounds fascinating so samuel thank you so much for joining us today this was a really fascinating conversation andrew spencer it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for having me here
Thanks to our episode sponsor, the Japanese watchmaker Grand Seiko, which raises the pure essentials of watchmaking to the level of art. You can learn more about the company at grand-seiko.com. And thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At a Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, Exploring the Five Senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv. This episode was produced by Emily Jang, Tiffany Zhao, Mike Lala, and Johnny Simon. <laughs>